Hello and welcome to Conspiracy Games and Counter Games, Season 2 of The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and its anxieties. My name is Aris Komporosos Afanasiu and I'm an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University College London. And I'm Adam Kingsmith, a PhD candidate in the Department of Politics at York University. This season, our podcast is dedicated to going beyond the headlines and the easy answers and exploring the rise of conspiracies, conspiracy theories, and conspiratorial thinking in a gamified capitalist world. This episode features a conversation with activist and interventionist artist Cassie Thornton. It was recorded on August 5th as part of the Conspiracies and Counter Games Summer Institute, organized by this project and rival, the Reimagining Value Action Lab. We now turn it over to the Institute's host, Max Haven, Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media and Social Justice at Lakehead University. Today we are joined by none other than Cassie Thornton, a social practice artist who will be speaking about her project, The Hologram. Um, And uh, for the sake of both information and full disclosure, Uh, Cassie is the co-director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab. We work together uh, at Rival and also on a project called the University of the Phoenix, and we are also partners. So uh, full disclosure, this is not going to be a completely unbiased interview. Uh, But it does mean that I, as as an interviewer, have uh, have kind of uh, observed quite a bit about the project that she'll be speaking about today, which is the hologram. Um, but briefly, uh, before we begin there, a few notes about Cassie. So Cassie, as I mentioned, is a uh, social practice artist, uh, which for those of you unfamiliar with the uh, currents in contemporary art, means that rather than producing artifacts, rather than producing paintings or sculptures, Cassie might be described as a sort of sculptor of social circumstances, of human relationships. Uh, it's a form of art that evolved out of feminist art, activist art, conceptual art, Uh, and performance art. Um, Cassie graduated with a master's degree, a master of fine arts degree from the California College of the Arts in 2012 uh, in social practice. And uh, during that time focused on the theme of debt, uh, doing for instance, debt visualizations with her fellow students under the argument that in fact, the CCA and other similar institutions were doing a better job at producing debt and debtors than they were at producing art and artists. Um, Since that time, Cassie has been commissioned by art institutions uh, and other strange funders around the world and uh, done a number of um, solo or collaborative works, including, as I was mentioning, debt visualizations, where she would work with uh, people who are in debt uh, in order to envision their debt as a kind of common architecture, a common problem, rather than a personalized worry. Uh, One of her projects, Give Me Cred, uh, attempted to start an alternative credit reporting bureau that would allow a sort of peer-to-peer method for people to write one another credit reports rather than relying on huge alienating industries. Uh, One of her projects, the Poet Security Force, worked with private security guards to ask them to write poetry about what needs to be protected and what the private uh, security industry was in fact protecting. She's led, including here at the Reimagining Value Action Lab, Feminist Economics Yoga, and she's done institutional critique and installation work under the banner of something called Bad Support. 
which looked at the way in which arts institutions and many institutions in our society in their attempts to provide support to the people who work in them or depend on them actually provide a form of bad support, uh, which kind of collapses in on them, both literally and metaphorically. And all of those uh, activities led to the project that she's currently working on with a number of other people, some of whom are in the Zoom room with us, and I think we'll chime in a little later in our session here, called The Hologram. Uh, the Hologram is the subject of a recent book that Cassie published uh, about a year ago, uh, published under the Vagabonds imprint of Pluto Press. And very briefly, uh, though Cassie, I'm sure we'll go into it in a little bit more detail, uh, the hologram is a peer-to-peer -peer health model where four people gather, perhaps in a Zoom room much like this, to uh, learn about one another, to ask each other informed and intelligent questions, and to provide a kind of peer support and peer-to-peer peer -peer healthcare uh, in a moment of crisis. Welcome, Cassie. Thank you for joining us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Let's begin, uh, Cassie, by, by talking a little bit about the origins of the Hologram Project. I wonder if you can tell us where this project came from, uh, perhaps starting with your own experiences being an American and suffering under that system's vastly unequal healthcare system, and then your trips to Greece to study the solidarity clinics there. Sure. Um... Yeah, so let's see, the the hologram, I mean, I think the important thing to say is, and something that Max kind of started to say is that like a big part of, I think, where the hologram comes from is from spending a lot of time thinking about debt and from being uh, an anti-debt activist. So for a long time, I mean, even since I was a kid, I thought a lot about debt and the sort of sense of owing and um, you know, some of that debt is financial and some of it is not, some of it's, it's bigger. Um, and so I guess to me in a way, like the, the hologram most importantly is a kind of antidote to um, spending many years revealing like the pain that debt causes or the, the isolation um, and individualization that's created by living in a world that's organized around who owes who and who has power over who. And so I think in a weird way, like the hologram is, I'm just, I feel so lucky because I feel like the hologram came because of that being so intimate with debt. And one way that I was intimate with debt was as um, just a person that grew up in the United States where um, any kind of medical care resulted in profound amounts of debt. And so I experienced the actual like the loss of life um, of people really close to me who just absolutely couldn't afford healthcare and went into extreme amounts of debt, um, which kept them from getting life-saving care that they needed. And then, so um, I'm very interested in those systems and how they're replicated socially and how they're replicated um, financially and how they're replicated politically and then how we end up reproducing them ourselves without even knowing it. Um, so because I was so interested and invested in like how debt exists and how we exist because of it in certain ways, um, I started to pay much more attention, um, maybe starting about a decade ago in like international debt flows. And so um, it was really fascinating to me to watch what was happening in Greece in the early 2010s 
um, when they were deemed bankrupt by the EU. And um, I think, you know, I was just completely floored to find out that the response that was um, happening in Greece was for many, many people to create free, totally free clinics all over Greece. Um, and I think not only were they free clinics, they were often in squatted buildings, not always, but many. Um, and lots of doctors and nurses and different types of healthcare workers, masseuses and dentists, acupuncturists, all volunteered their time to create fully free health clinics. And I, I, as an American person, as a person who only has experienced really private healthcare, very expensive healthcare, and even like in a weird way, had been raised to believe that the best healthcare would be the most expensive healthcare. I think I was just so moved by the idea of these professionals giving up their time um, and doing something even potentially illegal to create free care at their own, you know, really at their own risk. Um, and so this, like this on its own is amazing, but then um, learning more, I found out that there was one particular clinic that was not only interested in giving free care, but they were also interested in giving better care, um, care that did not include many of the hierarchies that happen in most medical systems. And so this clinic, which to me was like a rumor that I heard about in Thessaloniki, there was this clinic and they were giving care, non-hierarchical care. And that all I heard was that when you were a patient, you went in and you were seen by a therapist and a social worker and a doctor at the same time and that they spent two hours with you. That's all I knew. And so I went on a bit of a journey to Greece with a friend, another healthcare researcher, we went there and we found one of the people that ran this clinic or that worked on this particular project, which is called the integrative model um, and found that it was at this place called the Social Solidarity Clinic of Thessaloniki and it still exists. And that they were looking at how to give care in this way um, with these three people really looking at the patients, um, but looking at them from all these different dimensions and really trying to ask them like, what do you need from us? Like, what do you need in order to be healthy? And how can we support you in doing that? Um, and it was like mind blowing to hear about that. After having 10 minutes with doctors my whole life who I couldn't afford, this was so revolutionary. It seemed so old and so new. Um, so anyway, this, this little idea, um, which now I've spent a couple of years speaking with one of the people that work on it um, named Rosa Morelli, I, I feel like we've taken that in the hologram and transformed it into something that's even more non-hierarchical, into something that we can do ourselves without space, without money. Um, well, actually we have a little bit of money now, but we can talk about that in a second. Um, without space, without expertise, without professionals, without professionalization, um, we've developed a system where we can kind of take some of the lessons of what they were doing in the Social Solidarity Clinic of Thessaloniki using the integrative model and kind of like uh, absorb it and do it our own way. Um, and to create a bit of, I think what Max is calling like a conspiracy, um, also maybe like a big alternate world of care where care is done a little bit differently than any of us have ever experienced. I wanna come back to that question of alternative realities, games, conspiracies in a minute, but I wonder just for those who are unfamiliar with the, uh, the process, can you walk us through what a typical hologram meeting would look like and what happens? 
the idea of the hologram is based on the idea that the person who is receiving care is powerful. And so we call that person the hologram. Um, that person invites three people to support them um, to come to regular meetings. And in a meeting, um, the person who is the hologram is asked lots and lots of questions by the three people supporting them. The three people supporting them we call the triangle. And uh, one person asks the hologram questions about their physical well-being. So physical being the body, the home, the environment, the earth. Um, another person, the, the second person asks them questions about their social well-being, um, their relationships, their work, their working relationships, their roommates, uh, their relationships to social systems, maybe even finance, find their relationship to money maybe. Um, the third person in the triangle asks them questions about their mental and emotional well-being. So their ideas, their feelings, their dreams, their beliefs. And the idea is that those things, they happen over maybe an hour and a half or two hours and they happen regularly over a long period of time. So I am a hologram. I have three people that meet with me. Um, at times we've met every week when my health has been bad. And at times we meet every three months or even maybe sometimes we might meet every six months, um, but that we do that over time. So slowly the triangle members really get a sense of who I am in all these different dimensions. And so the idea is that over time, I have almost like a living medical record, like people that really know what I've been through. And so when a big decision comes up, when I need to maybe like decide whether or not to have an expensive surgery or when I need to decide whether I want to move or whether I want to take a new job. There's three people that have been there with me for a while who can see my patterns and help me maybe make some decisions about like where I've been and where I want to go. Um, and I think a really, really, so that's like what happens in the kind of micro, um, like one step bigger, one step back, um, the hologram is not necessarily, well, the hologram model necessitates that the hologram makes sure to support their triangle members to get support also. So I don't give back to my triangle members what they give to me. I don't turn around and say, and how are you? I say, how can I make sure that you're getting the support you need? And so the hologram model moves virally between people. And the idea is that we're working on creating like a culture um, a culture of care, a culture of a different way of distributing labor that moves through people. One of the things I love about the Hologram Project is that viral nature of it and that it's, I mean, it, you are an artist, it kind of came out of your collaborations with others, but, you know, within a few years, I believe, uh, starting in 2022, you intend to make the Hologram not your project, but something that's a kind of run collaboratively between the people who practice it, a kind of vast international conspiracy. And, and I think it's worth mentioning that now, you know, it's, it's an interesting art project, but there are potentially hundreds of people practicing this already. And it's, it's less of a project and more of a protocol in a certain way, in the sense that it's, you've kind of given away for free the way to do it, the methodology, and people are encouraged to participate in holograms and form their own holograms. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on this uh, series to talk about how kind of acting conspiratorially can be a method of resistance, of care, of solidarity as well. 
I wanted to maybe begin by talking about that by asking you why so many people mistake it for a pyramid scheme. I love pyramid schemes, and this is absolutely an anti-capitalist pyramid scheme. So I think that people are correct. And like we've, if anybody looks at the website, which is the hologram.xyz, you'll see that the whole thing is designed as like a series of inverted pyramids. I just, I feel like they're right. I mean, I just feel like like our training is that like if somebody, if something is being given to you, it's probably a trick. Like if something is being offered to you that feels like it's going to augment your well-being so often, especially in the United States, but now more and more everywhere, that is, there's a profit motive underneath. And I think that most people haven't really had that many experiences where something that is branded, that looks cool, that sounds cool is not a trick. Um, And that we're not trying to somehow take something from them and, and skim off of like skim off of the people that use the hologram and somehow like centralize the resources like so somehow profit off of their attention but actually we really literally aren't we really literally are just actually it's a practice and i think it's so it it creates such it's kind of so fun and it's such like an inversion of like the expectations around care that I think the people that are really using it just actually want more people to use it because it's like, it's kind of more fun if more people do it. Um, but yeah, so I guess I just, I think that the, the idea that it is um, a pyramid scheme is like, it comes from people who have seen a pattern in society. And I completely agree with them. And if I was from the out, looking at it from the outside, I think I might see the same thing. And what is a pyramid scheme if you take out the desire to kind of uh, centralize power or resources? So the dream of the hologram is that by 2023, it will be just like a decentralized thing. Like I like to think about it like, um, like a not abusive AA where you have a protocol and- Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. Yeah, Alcoholics, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. So you have a protocol that anybody can sort of unravel for themselves in their communities, like cater it, like optimize it for themselves so that it works for them and their people and use it. And that's just, that's it. Um, but I think, yeah, the other, the other side of a pyramid scheme is that you assume that somehow um, like, yeah, all of that energy is, is being used kind of against you in the end, where we just actually want to sort of like create a bunch of opportunities for people to create ener- a different type of energy. I want to link this to a discussion we were having a week ago with uh, Rutgers University Communications Professor Jack Bradich. And uh, in that interview, we talked about an article that he had written about the rise of far-right uh, misogynist online uh, social movements, notably the uh, pickup artist phenomenon and uh, the insult uh, phenomenon. And one of the things that he sort of out, like sort of laid out for us is that we see a kind of new uh, relationship between sort of very violent and misogynistic forms of patriarchy and sexism in a neoliberal moment where, you know, uh, neoliberalism as a form of sort of extreme capitalism tells 
men especially, but, but really everyone that, you know, if you are an individualist, if you compete against everyone to succeed, if you try and impose your will on the world, you will sort of get what you want. And then of course, that's just simply not true for the vast majority of people. Most people don't get what they want in their life under capitalism and their experience is one of oppression, exploitation and misery, or at least incredible alienation. And his argument was that this experience of oppression, exploitation, alienation, and disenchantment leads to the kind of uh, backlash, sort of uh, hyper-masculine, patriarchal backlash cultures. Now, I wanted to bring that up because I, I think you approached the hologram and you created it through the un, under the umbrella of a project you've been working on for a number of years called the Feminist Economics Department. Um, you're not by training technically an economist, um, but why why did you choose to work under the title of feminist economics department and how is the hologram a form of feminist economics? So I think that the calling myself the feminist economics department, or it's not exactly that I called myself it, but I, instead of having um, projects that were just by Cassie Thornton, I often just, it would be by the Fed. Um, I think I was, I was trying to acknowledge the fact that like, whatever I do, it takes, it, it takes a whole lot of different types of human labor, like, and it's not just me, it's like all the, all the interactions that lead up to the moment, as well as all the people that are actually involved in the projects that I'm involved in. And I think people who don't even know they're contributing to my projects are contributing to my project. So I think it's like kind of acknowledging everyone that is a part of the production of the work that I do, which is um, I think acknowledged by lots of different types of feminists and feminist economists, um, like the invisible labor, the, re the labor of reproduction, um, that we do when we take care of our houses or when we produce food or when we um, do when we do all the labor that basically like keeps us going like that labor is also the labor that allows the economy to exist and so like my work the work that actually gets shown at a museum or that like exists published on a website like you can only really see like one tiny bit, like the top layer of what what is happening. And meanwhile, so much other labor exists underneath that. And so I think like the feminist economics department was a naive way of like acknowledging that. And I loved that the acronym was the Fed um, because it's, it's like the the fem like the work that exists has been fed by all these other invisible workers. Um, and I think it's really important and I meant to say it in response to your last question. I just, I mean, the, the project of the hologram already is distributed. Like there's so many people that do the work of maintaining it. And, um, we've been given different types of resources, which we've been able to distribute through different people, which meant that those people, uh, were able to actually like contribute meaningful work to the project. So I would say already at this point, it is distributed and it's, I would say like carried by me, maybe 30% and 70% by a network of many other people. Um, and I think 
like when we get to the point where my name can actually recede into the background and the project just exists the way we say AA Alcoholics Anonymous and just know it's, know what it is I think that like we will have really succeeded when it's just the hologram and people just know what it is and how to use it um, and it doesn't have to be a part you don't have to know the narrative of Cassie Thornton it's just a thing that exists in the world and I can use it and there's ways that I know like I, I know about like people will know about it for their own reasons because people they know did it or whatever this is uh another link to something we were talking about in our very first session where I was speaking with my colleagues Aris Comparosos Athanasiou and A.T. Kingsmith and together the three of us uh, we've launched this Conspiracy Games and Counter Games project. And one of the things we're fascinated by is the power of collective fabulation. Uh, and, you know, on the negative side, we have things like the QAnon uh, conspiracy fantasy, uh, where, you know, people are collectively seemingly without a sort of center or Svengali or a mastermind concocting this elaborate fantasy, which involves everything from celebrities to technology to politicians, uh, and really like egging each other on in this kind of game that they're playing of the imagination. And I wanted to conclude uh, our series by talking to you about, I think, a much more positive kind of conspiracy of collective fabulation, where you and the other hologrammers are you know, coming together to sort of usher into being something out of the imagination, but something that is here to, uh, dare I say, save the world rather than destroy it. Um, and I want to ask about a specific methodology about that in a second, which is the way you've used LARPs and games uh, to do that. But before I get there, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you're very clear and, and your colleagues in the hologram are very clear that the hologram is not just a replacement for therapy. And you've talked about this in, in some ways as a kind of like growing conspiracy for a revolution, an anti-capitalist revolution. You talk about this as an anti-capitalist social technology. Why is it so important to distinguish the hologram from therapy when it is arguably very therapeutic for people who do it? I mean, they, they get together in their groups and they talk about the social physical and mental problems that are ailing them, why isn't it just therapy? And wh what, how, does it, how does it aim towards a transformation of society at large? Mm. There's so much to say about the therapy piece, but I think like to, to keep it really simple, um, like therapy is a commodity that reproduces individualism and the importance of the individual and a focus on the expert as an authority over our health. And um, I think models a type of like heroism that we in the hologram are really trying to undo. And when I say that, I mean like uh, who isn't in so many different ways, like searching for um, someone who can throw them a rope to get them out of whatever tangle they're in in their life. Um, and I think like when, when people are, when people have been socialized around therapy, like we have learned how to rely on and get all of our help and support from like one person at a time. Um, and that person often becomes like a lifeline for us. And that can be really beautiful and amazing and awesome and all that stuff. But also, uh, 
being a person who really likes to be in a supportive role, I think that the way that like the sort of therapeutic mode, like what the therapeutic mode creates for relationships is really hard to maintain. So like, I am a very willing supporter of any of my friends who have a problem, but I don't have the expertise or the energy to support them in a long-term way that they, the way that they would need in order to achieve some sort of personal transformation, because I'm also fighting my own demons and I'm also um, surviving under capitalism and have internalized my own shit from it. Um, so I guess the way that the hologram confronts that is by showing how, how easy and maybe it's not easy, how accessible it can be to receive help and support in a different way um, where there are no heroes, there are no experts. And in fact, like uh, the patient, the person seeking help is actually the person who is powerful. Um, they are the expert and they are the teacher. Um, and I think that that there's so many different inversions happening and it's sort of like inversions and uh, like turning inside out of what therapy is and does and teaches um, that I just think it's like, it's almost in a completely different ballpark. And I guess I just wanna say a little bit more about the role of the hologram in the project because I think it really does invert the sort of relationship we have to authority and expertise in biomedicine and therapy, which is that like, we really, really focus on the idea that the hologram is an expert and a teacher. And the way that we do that is by saying the, the person who is receiving care is the expert about their own health. No one else has been in their body. No one else has been along with them for this ride that is their life. And so they know the most about what they need and what they want. And it just is a matter of practice to figure out how to talk about those things for most of us. And so the hologram is like an amazing opportunity for that person to learn how to actually talk about themselves and what they need. And to because to articulate that is not valued in our society because really we go to the doctor so they can tell us what we need um, or to the therapist. And then the second part, um, the hologram as a teacher, I think is really, it's an amazing thing because, because like articulating one's needs or expressing vulnerability is so undervalued in our society. But the person that does that becomes a teacher for the people who get to witness that. So when I exist as a hologram, I show the people that are supporting me that they can also do this and that it's not shameful. You are not a burden. Uh, you deserve support and support wants to, like people want to support you. Um, and so I think that these things, um, they naturally sort of counter the therapeutic model. And I just think it's like the reason that the hologram, one of the reasons why the hologram is an anti-capitalist capitalist, and I think quite revolutionary social technology is because it just shows us that there are other options that are very different than the models that we've always existed within. And even if you don't, if the hologram is not your thing, it's just like, it just shows that they're with a very small shift from the care we've always received things can be really, really different. And I think um, at least among the people that practice it, I think like we can all, we all sort of see how different things can be. And it gives us a bit of a license 
to reorganize. And I think the license to reorganize is part of the model that I think we can't, like we can't put aside and just begin to see it as like something that helps me um, because it's, it's also something that helps me see that like other things are possible and tangible. And I guess like the, the thing that I, I hear a lot um, cause we teach a lot of like courses and do like lots of different types of like facilitated online stuff. So lots of different people have touched the hologram, like hundreds, maybe like we might be in a th the, the category of like a thousand people or something that have interacted with the hologram in a kind of deep way. We hear often that people, um, they're like, we could really leave the politics aside. It doesn't matter because it's like just the practice is helping me. But I think that the, we will never let go of the politics because the politics means that as we are like learning these new muscles, like we're learning how to organize our own care, we're learning how to have exchange outside of money, or like actually we're learning to do stuff without exchange. We're learning to like receive and to give and to separate those two things. Like we're learning all kinds of anti-capitalist tools. Um, but like, I think the whole point is that we're actually gaining those muscles so that we can use them in other situations besides helping ourselves. And so I guess the final example that I wanna say in this section is just that like, we've learned that the hologram exists, I think in two spaces simultaneously when it's the healthiest. And that is that we work in holograms, we spend a lot of time like I spend, you know, every month or three months, I meet with my three people and we talk about me and those three people meet with their three people and they talk about them. And then we all get together in a monthly meeting or as many of us as can and that know about it get together and we actually talk about it. We talk about it as a model and we talk about it as an experience and we talk about why it's hard. We talk about augmenting it. And we have basically like a monthly organizing meeting called the community of practice where maybe 20, sometimes 10, sometimes 30 people get together and we just do go rounds and talk about what it's like to use the hologram. And like, it's so important to me that we go between these like intimate spaces where we're really learning how to receive attention and care and how to ask questions. And then we go and we take those muscles and we practice them in a bigger space where we begin to learn what it's like to be a mental, emotional, social, physical being with other physical, mental, emotional, social beings. And we learn how to be vulnerable, but also how to make demands and to negotiate because basically like in the world that we are entering, we need to learn how to be part of groups in different ways how to organize and be present with our full selves and how to potentially at times do that online, how to potentially go from online to offline, but to be able to continue to be our full selves as we negotiate for really big things around like land and water and government and incarceration. So I think like the, the project really is like a, like a booster kit for getting people, for getting us, me, we, to be able to like actually organize in a different way because we have different muscles available. But I wanted to invite you to talk a little bit about uh, some of the techniques that you use along with the other uh, hologrammers, some of whom are here with us today, which is LARPing. The LARP is short for live action role-playing. And this is something that I think you, you 
uh, cooked up in collaboration with uh, folks at Furtherfield Gallery who've been practicing LARPing for a number of years. A few months ago, you staged a live action role play where people were, play were, were had imagined what they would be and who they might be in a couple of decades into the future, and then showed up to a Zoom meeting, uh, facilitated Zoom meeting, uh, as their future selves. Why do the LARP? And what did you learn from it? First of all, before I talk about the LARP, I just think it's it's really interesting, just an, uh, an observation that a few of us have been making, because now it is about a year, almost about a year and a quarter since the hologram has been a form that is online. So there's many people that know each other only through the hologram who've never met in person. There are people that are in like on different continents, continents that I have never been to before that I know now very intimately from doing lots and lots of hologram stuff together. Like we feel in a way, I think many of us as if we started out doing a project that was like a practice to help us in our own lives and we entered a game. And so the hologram always was about creating a new world and creating the muscles that would help us to be, to create a post-capitalist world. But I don't think we understood that we would actually be entering it like on accident. And so I feel like the, the sense right now that I get from talking to many people that practice the hologram and who stay in communication with each other, who come to community of practice is that like, we already are in an alternative reality because we are practicing these things and honing these practices, like honing these practices together. We're learning as we go, but like there's a sense of possibility in the whole practice and, a, and also like a, a network of relationships that are new and that exist only through the hologram that it feels like it does feel a little bit like we're in a kind of virtual or alternative reality. Um, and so that happened almost like as a byproduct of doing a practice online. And that exists already for so many people, I think doing so many different things online right now. So that's already interesting because like, I almost see the hologram itself as a LARP already. I become, maybe I become a slightly different person in the role that I play. And I've, maybe everybody plays a slightly different role than they already play when we enter the hologram space. Um, not that it is a really exactly a space, but okay. So then the LARP that we've done um, was a way of solving a problem actually. So live action role play is something that happens online, but it, happen, it ha happens online very commonly now it has happened online for quite some time, but it also happens in real life. And so people take on characters and there is a, it's a sort of game of improvisation. So how do we um, sort of agree on a set of rules that are the rules that form a world and then agree on a set of roles that we're gonna play with in that world and then interact with each other in the world that we've agreed on. And that world might change and our roles might change, but we're all kind of go, like developing it as we go. And so we wanted to solve a problem, which is that we wanted to make a film about the hologram with a filmmaker. And the live action role play was a way of basically creating an opportunity for people to do holograms without exposing their personal information. 
So we actually asked people to become their best selves, which was, it was sort of meant as a, a prompt that was supposed to be sort of real and sort of funny at the same time. So we enacted our best selves now in 2020 or 2021, and then also in 2050. And the idea was that we would play the role of the person, if we, if we all had all the support we ever needed, if we all, if we all did all, made all the decisions we wish we made and we had no regrets, who would we be? And we played those characters. And so the characters that we played were ranged from being like very close to who we are right now to being very, very like actually an oyster. Um, and we saw, we, the, the goal was to make a film, but also just to try to imagine what it would be to practice the hologram, the same people over 30 years. So you meet with your three people now, every month, every, or every season, all the way now until 2050. What does that do for you? And what does that do for your society? What does it do for your community? That was the, the prompt of the LARP. And I think that the, um, yeah, I think, whenever you um, whenever you take on a character and you improvise, like you become the character and the character becomes you a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm gonna combine two questions here because they're both about um, the role of the hologram in an alienated society. And uh, Andrew asks, what, what are there options in the hologram for people who don't have three people in their life who they would trust or that they can trust to be their hologram and you know uh what what role would that have for people who live in in isolation um or or maybe physical literal physical isolation or social isolation and then um to that end kelsey asks uh you know throughout the term we've been discussing the difficulty of um communicating with people who believe or who are sort of in the depths of conspiracy fantasies because one of the things that we've learned from the texts we've been reading and the people we've talked to is that a lot of the time people come to conspiracy fantasies and get attached to conspiracy fantasies because they offer a sense of community. They offer a sense of escape from alienation and meaninglessness. Because, you know, once you get enfolded, especially in a digital age, into the conspiracy theory, you find a community, you find people who validate you, you find people who, uh, you know, share your worldview. You feel a sense of usefulness in the world, a sense that you understand things. Again, in the spirit of talking about the hologram in an alienated society, do you think the hologram could be useful in circumstances where, for instance, friends and family members need to talk someone out of belief in a dangerous conspiracy fantasy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, so the question from Andrew, like about um, isolation and the possibility of doing the hologram um, when you don't have community, I think, um, the question comes up so much and there's a general sense, I think, uh, like all the time in capitalism, but all, especially now, um, many, many people feel alone and that they don't have access to the, to, to people, to especially to three people that they could really trust. And there's like many, many layers to, to a, a potential response, but I think one is that um, the goal of the project is that you can do it with many, many different types of people. There's a way to trust many different people um, to do this because um, 
you learn as you go as a triangle member you learn you can you're not all the responsibility isn't on you it's on you and others um and I think the goal is that um yeah like everybody does know a couple of people it's just a matter of establishing the language and the trust to invite them closer to you to be able to do this um but then recognizing that so many people feel this way we um we have lots of different situations come up where somebody will like take a course through the hologram learn how to do it and then want to do it but feel they don't have people and so because there's a pretty big community of people who have taken the course a lot of those people begin to sort of cross pollinate and like be in each other's triangles and stuff like that so that's that's already happening and then i think like potentially one day we may decide to have um, a system in place where you can have people that are sort of free floating uh who you can go online and select like the option of having someone come who is a stranger to join your hologram if you're doing it online and so that you can have i think both a perspective of somebody who's way outside of your life and or fill the gap if you don't have, feel like you can ask all people that you know. But I think the, 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 real, the real tension here and the real opportunity is to actually find out that you do have people around you, even though you might feel like you don't. Because I think based on my experience, everyone feels like they don't have anybody to ask. And then one day they do. And it's a matter of seeing rather than a matter of like what's actually there um and i love the question so much from kelsey i think that when you do the hologram um it, you find out you don't just find out what people are into you find out why so there's many conspiracies that people participate in or believe in um or big systems that people are wedded to and i think like the question that comes up or that the answer that is given in the hologram is often like, like, how did you get here? Like, why is it that you are studying what you're studying on the internet 24 seven? Like, how did you get there? How did you get to the point where you didn't, where you had such, um, such a distrust or such a paranoia? Like what's underneath that? And I think the, the thing about the hologram though is that it takes time. And it's not like a one-time thing. It's like something, it's like un uncovering something very gently and very slowly. And so there's nothing better, I think, than having a difficult situation where someone's latched, um, there's someone that's latched to an ideology and a way of doing things. Um, there's nothing better than the hologram to sort of slowly unearth that. But also you'd have to have the buy-in from the person and that's a whole other thing because they have to consent and want it. And I have no doubt that some of those people underneath would love to be rescued from their ideology and their way of doing things. But for, for a group of people who are suffering from a major lack of trust in society, which is why they're so enmeshed in conspiracy theories, I think it's a pretty tough sell for them to trust something like this. So, you know, yes, and huh? how? Like, <laughs> At Figgins, who's a game designer who's been with us through the uh, Institute, um, 
points out that in um, in sort of the open gaming world, uh, which is one element of kind of the community of game designers and game players who are sharing their game designs for free, there's a kind of um, there's something called uh, called a protocol text where people uh, they they point out could teach one another together. And in play, someone who has played the game before uh, teaches other new players or the group kind of learns the game together. And, and Figgins is wondering if an option like this is included in the hologram and if it would make it improve its chances of kind of going viral as, as you've been talking about. And then uh, similarly, Casey, who's also a game designer who's been with us through the uh, Institute asks, Kind of what what's your kind of imaginary roadmap to get uh to get people involved in the hologram and get it to this sort of scale of aa or the kind of 12-step uh culture where you know and specifically like how how could the introduction of people to the process and getting people onboarded be streamlined and improved we have been trying to simplify the protocol. I think it took us a year basically to figure out what the protocol really was and to trust it and use it a lot. And now we really have that down. And I think um, we've just recently kind of written and edited um, a text, which I think might be like the protocol text you're talking about um, for how to have your first meeting and um, like what it means to kind of like play these, uh, how to play these different roles. Um, I would love to see what it was like to translate that to an actual game protocol because I think it's I think it's brilliant and I think it is like an open game um, and that's what it wants to be. I think um, yeah and so in this what we're working on right now is taking that protocol that we wrote and translating it to ten languages and having a PDF and I don't know I'm curious like what the open game protocol looks like because and where those live because. If there's like a, a rebel anti-capitalist Twitch or like a like a place where it can exist, like I feel like I would so love to see what it would mean to just throw the hologram in there. The second question about how to kind of grow the hologram and simplify the introductory process. I don't know exactly. I mean, I think at the moment we're just trying to figure out how to make it possible for more people to talk about it and to have it grow through practicing it. So, you know, say we have, we've hosted four online courses, each one had 30 people. Each of those people have three people that will be, would potentially be their triangles. And then you have all the three people, each of those three people have three people. I think the dream was to make as many situations like that as possible so that like the thing would just kind of grow through word of mouth. Um, and I think like we, we have other things happening, like a film is gonna come out based on the LARP. And then there's, um, you know, different sorts of, I think things that will happen that are made by people in the community that use the hologram that will hopefully spread. But I think there isn't a big central idea for like how to kind of like, how to grow it in a capital G way. And maybe that's okay. Like maybe it, it's okay if it grows slowly and through people that use it and believe in it. Or maybe, I don't know, yeah. 
some of the students enrolled in the class around which this institute is built uh, were listening earlier this week to an interview you did with CS Song of uh, KPFA's Program Against the Grain. And in that, uh, you talked about the, the elements of the hologram that uh, are parafictional. And just to uh, back up a moment, a, a parafiction is a concept come up, uh, sort of invented by artists to describe the way that a kind of myth that spreads itself can become real. And you spoke about the hologram in some ways as a, as a parafiction, as, as something that you're spreading the word about and your, your co-conspirators are spreading the word about in the hopes that people will learn about it, be attracted to it, participate in it and make it real. And, and you've written about parafictions about the hologram and when it sort of takes over the world in a few years. And you were talking about the LARP where you do this kind of participatory parafiction as well, where you're sort of telling yourself a story collectively in the hopes that that story becomes real. Um, William asks, uh, isn't there a fundamental danger in parafictions and, and points towards the QAnon conspiracy fantasy, which in some ways is this kind of completely fabulous made up story about the world, but one that comes to have very real power. So uh, isn't, isn't parafiction kind of in some ways just another form of disinformation or misinformation? And Ashley asks a related question, which is, you know, if, if the hologram is spreading through parafiction, and if, you know, starting in 2023, it's going to be kind of a decentralized thing where there's no artist, uh, isn't it also incredibly susceptible to people spreading misinformation or disinformation about it? because there's no sort of central repository for official hologram information. And theoretically anyone could be, could name themselves a participant. Yeah, I love those questions. Um, I think that the, so I guess my response to the, the kind of skepticism of around using parafiction, I, I have like two different thoughts. One is just that like, um, I don't just want like bad fantasies. I don't want to like just let people that are kind of coming up with dystopian fantasies like rule our sense of like what's possible or uh I think that there's really there was there was a very good use of parafiction in the hologram and we might be in a different era now, but I wouldn't just leave um yeah, parafiction to the people. To, to those who uh, are creating parafictions around like childhood sexual abuse. Like, I think we can reclaim some of these sorts of so, yeah, sort of uh, practices to create really impossibly good things as well as impossibly bad things. Um, and I think that the, the example I use in that interview about Occupy Wall Street is a really important example because like, humans like to be where other humans are. So Occupy Wall Street, maybe Zuccotti Park had 20 people in it and someone makes a picture, makes a like a, an augmented image of Zuccotti Park that has 400 people in it. And that means that 400 people feel like called to come because otherwise there would just be 20 people. And so that, that fiction, that fictional image that was created like actually allowed something to happen that became really important. And I think that's basically worked in the hologram. Like I lied and it was a 
really important lie to say like, this is a practice that already exists. This is, it is a, uh, a mytho real or mytho, yeah, mytho real practice, um, practiced by many people all over the world from their couches to their beds. And because of that lie, it meant that people actually joined us. So it went from being a pair of fiction to a pair of real project. So as I said before, there's almost a sense that we, we, those who are very committed and dealing and practicing with the project, it's almost like we did create a parallel reality just by switching the way we talk sometimes and thinking about uh, what it's like to redistribute care. And so I think like, yeah, the parafiction was like the, the way to start the engine. And, um, and I'm not particularly worried about it. Um, and I think in fact, like maybe you, like we should do it. Like, <laughs> I think we should like think of all the things that would like help. And then we should like lie, lie about it until it becomes real. Um, like, why not? What was the second question? Well, uh, the second question was about if there's a risk that disinformation or misinformation about the hologram might be spread simply because it's so decentralized. And, and uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think that that is possible, but um, I think like the something that we will aim to do, I think in the next chunk of time is to make something that is like our way of dealing with the intellectual property that is the hologram practice. Um, and so that might be something like a very specific type of license that we develop that says that if you use this practice well for good reasons to support other people and yourself in transforming, like all blessings to you, it's going to work great. And if you use it to increase any sort of, uh, productivity or that that leads to the centralizing of resources or capital you will be damned and it will not work for you or maybe it will transform you I don't know but I think that like in some way I think I think basically the practice is pretty it's pretty powerful and I don't think it would work um like kind of against itself I think it either would transform the people who use it if they actually submit to the form. Because I don't think you can really be a triangle member and truly be a narcissistic asshole or be really like profit driven. If you're really, really honestly able to be curious and ask questions, I think something else, something else is possible and you will transform. And I think you cannot be like in the role of the hologram and be vulnerable and articulate and support the people who are supporting you if you also are have like kind of evil motives. So I think the hologram naturally would work to transform anybody that really gave it a go. And if anybody tried to steal the project and use it in a way that we did not believe in or agree with, I'm not sure what would happen. But because it's decentralized, I guess that's the point is that like there would be a bunch of people maybe trying to use it or trying to manipulate it, but it wouldn't in a weird way 
have to necessarily like tarnish the experience of all the others because it's there's a pretty big array of people using it in different places that do or do not know each other um yeah I think that's the goal that's the goal of decentralization in some ways is that like it's okay if part of the ship goes down because like the other parts are still floating.